When we begin these discussions in this forum, we try to try to set ourselves the goal of discussing things that are that are basic, things that are fundamental to understanding Torah, uh, the spiritual world in general. <coughs> so let's look at a subject which is probably the most central and also the most difficult to, to speak about and uh, to, to put into words, which is the nature of the, the deeper wisdom itself or the tool of perception that is needed in order to begin dealing with and processing Torah at a deeper level. <clears throat> That's the subject of the wisdom that we call Das, or Das, which means intrinsic wisdom or inner knowledge. <coughs> if we make an effort together, we can possibly make some progress in understanding the subject. It is a great effort and uh, almost, it's by definition impossible to find the words for the subject. It's, it's one of those areas where you can only understand it by having your own inner understanding. The words that are needed to transmit the subject, by definition, I have to be able to show you, that the words by definition are inadequate. That means it's a subject that cannot be put in words. It's a subject that cannot be put in words, and yet the only medium that we have to, to share the subject <coughs> is the words themselves. So, the first problem with this subject is that it is not amenable to being expressed in words. And the second problem is that <coughs> those of us who've grown up with a Western head, Western mode of thinking, so Western thought is not geared to this level of awareness or consciousness or thinking. Eastern thought is largely much more familiar, much more, much more comfortable, much more familiar with this level of thinking. In fact, the Torah sources say that the Eastern systems in general were derived from the deeper level of Torah wisdom, which was specifically sent to the East. It does not mean that everything that is postulated in every Eastern system is in accord with Torah, far from it, but the methodology or the deeper awareness that is not the awareness of scientific and empirical measured wisdom that that theme or that current of energy or that that approach that is very much in harmony with this uh, with the subject in fact the derivation for that is that the uh, we have clear sources that say that uh, based on the verse based on the passage in Chumash that says that when Avram Avinu gave all the gifts, gave all his possessions to his son Yitzchak. Abraham gave everything he had to Isaac. Avram Avinu gave everything he had to Yitzchak. It says quite clearly he gave him everything. <coughs> and then right after that it says that he sent his children by Keturah, by Keturah another <coughs> who was really Hagar, he sent his children by her to the east bearing gifts. And the commentaries say, if he had given away everything that he had, 
already to Yitzchak, then how were there any gifts left that he could give to his other children to carry to the east? Right? And the obvious conclusion, as the Chazal themselves say over there, is that there is one kind of gift that although you've given it away, you still have it to give, and that is spiritual wisdom. You can have given all of that over to a disciple or a child, and you still have it left to give. Right? Some of the sources say it's like when a candle is lit from other candles, it does not diminish the flame of the first candle. It can light an infinite number of other candles and not diminish at all its own light. That's the nature of the spiritual wisdom, and therefore that is our formal derivation. There's much that's discussed about it for Eastern thought being having its origin in the deeper levels of the Torah wisdom, and the whole discussion of why it was sent to the East, specifically to be separated from Western thinking, is a whole discussion that we need to, perhaps on some other occasion, avoid as well. However, the, um, <laughs> the fact is that uh, that's what it says, and um, you'll, you'll probably probably aware that throughout the history of the West, we have had as Jews almost no interaction with the East. They've not been, it's not been our destiny in any way to interact with Eastern, Eastern world. All of our historic friction has been with the four exiles that have been the exiles imposed on us within the Western context. The Eastern world has not been our, has not been our, not been our issue. That requires further discussion. But what we need from this for now is that if you've grown up with a Western approach to, to knowledge, to wisdom, then that has almost certainly been a method of empirical, measured knowledge, things that can be proved in the lab, things that are reducible to laws of chemistry and physics. Nothing wrong with that, of course. But it has nothing to do with, or it has, it has an overlap, but it has a lot that is separate from the other area of wisdom, which is the area that's primarily needed for spiritual development and understanding. So the first problem is that <coughs> one of the problems is that we're not used to thinking on these wavelengths. In fact, the Western mind has been trained to be skeptical about that, which is deeper, and I'll try to show you, I'll try my best this evening to show you that it's not, it's absolutely essential. You cannot begin to think. I'd like to try to show you that you can't begin thinking in Western terms either without this deeper knowledge. The chances of our succeeding are small, but we'll, we'll, we'll try. <coughs> we'll try. The second reason, of course, as I mentioned, is not only that it's uh, not our habit in the West to think this way, but is that intrinsically it's a very difficult subject to talk about. By definition, this is the subject that can have no words, because you're talking about the kind of things that transcend the finite packages which words, which words are. And so we have said ourselves this evening, I mean, you can leave now if you... Yeah, I mean, I'm prepared to wait a few minutes for those who wish to leave, but for those who prepare to try... This is a very difficult task, but we are, I'd like to, to try and do this with you because you cannot really begin to think along Torah lines in a meaningful, in a meaningful way unless you have grappled with this, with this area. <coughs> Looks like you're staying huh? <laughs> Why do we attempt to discuss a subject that has no words? Why do we attempt to put into words? Again, we have a problem here. If I'm telling you that the subject cannot be stated in words that those are not the, that is not the medium that, that carries the subject, then why are we making the effort in the first place, if by definition it's impossible? The answer is that words can do the job, although they don't carry the message directly. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to put that into words either, but I'll, I'll give you an analogy, which hopefully is an analogy for this analogy. And that is, 
that if you need to convey something to someone that you readily recognize cannot be put into words, for example, let's reduce it to a very, very simple analogy. Let's say you wish to convey the nuances of a style or a skill that is needed in some very skilled or professional activity or action. But if you've ever, if you've ever a, um, acquired any, of, any skill in any particular personal area, you'll know that it's impossible to put into words what that skill comprises. Anyone out there? Let's reduce it even further. If you want to explain to somebody how to ride a bicycle, no amount of words could conceivably convey what is meant by how to balance yourself on a bicycle. No matter how articulate you are, no matter how long you speak, in fact, you can break it right down to scientific diagrams and, and formulae, and you can do whatever you want. You will never put into external expression the kind of communication that the person needs, that your victim needs, in order to learn how to balance on a bicycle. That's impossible. Is that, is that correct? In fact, not even demonstrating it will help you. Even if you get on and ride the bicycle, right? or if he's never balanced on a bicycle, all he'll think is that you're performing some miraculous illusion. Right? However, why do you do the demonstrations and the speech? Because what you're hoping is that you'll get him close enough by accident that he'll get it anyway. What you're hoping is that the student will get close enough through the brute force of your, of your guidance, of your words and your demonstration, that sooner or later, not expecting it, he'll find himself balancing. At that point, of course, what will happen is he'll turn around and look at you disbelievingly what you needed to speak so much for, for so long, because it's so obvious and so simple. But that's the way it goes. You use the words, although they're clumsy. Is this, can you see how clumsy this process of communication is? Can you see it? But can you see that this is the only way to do it? And therefore, the, the, the mystical, the deeper thinkers say that the only way you can convey these ideas is you use the words to get the, to get the student close enough so that he ultimately falls in by himself. When he's fallen in, it becomes, uh, it, yes, it becomes inconceivable to him why so many words were needed and how hopeless the words are. But the thing that he's discovered is so obvious that it doesn't need any words. Of course, when he tries to convey it to someone else, he'll have the same problem. He'll have the same problem. But that's the nature of this communication. So what the, what the Rebbe is trying to do in these subjects, what the Master is trying to do with the student, is he's trying to push him enough, close enough to the brink that he pushes him in and he falls in by himself. That's all he can do. He cannot show him what it is, but he can push him off the edge. Are we making any progress? Surprising. So, so the, nature, the nature of this kind of understanding is that it is not amenable to us, and yet that is the only medium that we have. So we will struggle along in that very inadequate medium we'll try to establish. But why I'm giving you this whole long introduction is because what you're trying to do this evening, what we are trying to achieve together, is not to understand something in the words that I'm saying. If you listen to the words that I'm saying, then this whole thing is a waste of time. You're supposed to be listening to the things that I'm not able to say. You should be listening to, to where this discussion is going to push you in your own consciousness. That's what we want to hear in this discussion. But since the words by definition are inadequate, if you're taking the words the way they, the way they sound, then by definition, the subject not amenable to that. To that. It's, a, it's, a, it's a great deal of very clumsy words to say things which I hope in the end you'll realize are so fundamental and are so obvious that they really don't need any words at all. But unfortunately, we do, we do, need, a, uh, we do need an approach to the subject cannot leave it to, to our natural, natural sensitivity.
so let's try, let's try to understand. There's an area of, of knowledge, of wisdom, which is the tool that one needs in order to approach a higher, <coughs> a higher knowledge, what we call emunah, knowledge of Hashem. Emunah does not mean faith, as I tried to explain before. I think we had a few discussions on that subject. Emunah does not mean faith in the English sense. In, in, the, English, in the English translation of the word faith, you are conveying something that is a completely blind belief. In fact, in English we say blind faith. The other word we use for faith in English is belief. Belief, by definition, means something that you cannot know. The whole concept of believing something, the whole concept of believing something, is that, is that if you know it, you don't, you don't use the word belief. If you know something, you talk about knowing it. The whole concept of belief is something that you cannot know. That's why you must believe. Something I see, I don't believe, I know. Something on the other side of that wall, I must believe because I cannot know it. If faith means belief, that which you cannot know, then it's nothing to do with our subject. It becomes a completely arbitrary decision whether you want to take on that, that belief. But if there's no point to fix it, if it can never be tested in knowledge, then it becomes a completely arbitrary thing. No faith will be better than any other. There'll be no point of registration or point of, point of reality. That's not the Jewish concept of faith. It's not a personal arbitrary decision to bamboozle yourself into taking something on because other people do, that's got nothing to do with our concept of faith. Where the blind element is in faith needs to be discussed as well and we have gone into that in the past, perhaps in the future we can look at it again. But that area that we call emuna, which is the concept of approach to knowing that which is deeper, to knowing that which cannot be demonstrated technically. But knowing it just as surely, and usually more surely, that requires an understanding and opening up of this faculty that we call das. So, again, let's try that very difficult and clumsy process of trying to get each other onto the path of opening up this, this area. This inner knowledge, and one other, one other condition, or perhaps warning for this subject, is that it's one of those subjects that cannot be understood unless all of it has been heard. It's one of those circular subjects that deeper, deeper sources say that these areas cannot be understood until the whole cycle has been Torah works in such a way that until you've been through the whole cycle, none of it makes any sense. The reason is, since, since we're talking about an infinitely interconnected wisdom, since all parts of the world and of the Torah universe contain the whole, then by definition you cannot understand any of the parts until you've seen all of them. Can you, can you see the paradox? If it's a system in which each part, to be understood fully, needs all the other parts, because each part contains all the other parts, right? That's the The axiom here is that when you're dealing with an infinite system, you're dealing with Torah, it's built in such a way that every component contains the whole. The reason for that, of course, why does the world have to be built in such a way? The reason for that is because since all is a oneness, right? Since the deepest element of Torah that we can grasp is Hashem Echad, that He is one, which means not that there's one of Him, but that there isn't anything else at all, that it is all, nothing other than Him. So it follows that if that infinite oneness pervades everything, so then no matter where you look, you must be able to see that. And if what you're seeing in any part is the whole, then by definition you must be able to see any other part in any part that you choose. The, the same sources say that if you look at any mitzvah in the Torah, you know there are 613 mitzvahs in the Torah. The sources say that if you look at any mitzvah closely, you will find in that mitzvah 612 lights that are glowing dimly, and the one light that is it itself, it is glowing brightly. The others are all there in the background, only they glow dim. They're there, but they're not, they're not active, they're dormant. They're asleep, as it were, but they're there. Right? Each mitzvah has 613 facets. 
of this, it's a polished and beautiful jewel that has 613 facets. Its facet is glowing brightly, and that's why it is the mitzvah that it is. Any other mitzvah has a different facet that glows. But they all have the same inner structure. I see we need an analogy. Let's take an example. If you look at the human body, example, the human body. If you break down the body into cells, you'll find amazingly that, this, that, the, that each cell has the same genetic components as all other cells in the body. That's a remarkable thing, but medically that's not understood. You know, that the, the, if you take any cell in the body, you'll find the entire genetic complement of the whole body. But that cell knows that all the rest must be dormant except the one that it's supposed to be. If you take a cell from the bottom of your toes, that, that little cell is manufacturing toe. That's what it's doing. Right? But it has all the genes to manufacture the retina at the back of your eye and everything else completely. Only all those components are dormant. They're sleeping. But the component that is what it's supposed to be is awake. <coughs> and amazingly, each cell in your body, each cell in your body, knows that what it has to produce in absolute total discipline and harmony with all the others, so that it produces what it has to produce and it manages to keep all the, all the rest quiescent. And the cell at the back of your eye is busy producing retina, but its genes for toes, which are there, fully intact. You know, you could take any cell from any part of your body and duplicate yourself entirely. Why anybody would want to do that beats me. But assume you'd, <laughs> assume you'd want to do that. Yes, if you would want to burden the world with another example. <laughs> of yourself, you could do it. But it wouldn't matter which cell of the body you, you took because they're all complete. Only somehow they know. You, uh, yes, incidentally, how this works, no one knows. You know that the way the embryo begins is that one cell begins, which is a fusion of two half cells. And you get a completely constituted cell which has one genetic code, which contains information for all the parts of the body. What then happens is it divides into two. But the two are identical. The two are identical. If you look at those two cells under a microscope, you don't see sort of from the waist up in the one, and then from the waist down in the other. You don't see that. You see two identical cells. And incidentally, you can prove that they're identical by plucking them apart and getting to grow separately, and they grow entire people. They don't grow half a person from the waist up, and this one grows half a person. doesn't do that. Each one grows an entire person. But if you leave them fused together until they split into four cells, or eight, or sixteen, or thirty-two, as they keep dividing, at any of those stages, you can pluck any of them out and grow an entire person from any of them, proving that any of them is complete. It's not only a sixteenth or a thirty-second. If you pluck off one of those cells and grow it, it doesn't produce half an arm and half a face. It doesn't do that. It produces an entire human being. But sooner or later, after all these absolutely identical cells get to a certain stage, some of them start forming the head, and some start forming feet. It's a remarkable thing. Nobody knows how that's done. There are sorts of fanciful theories, but nobody's even proposed a decent mechanism. <coughs> and finally, when it's fully differentiated, the cells producing nose, they do their job perfectly, and they don't think of producing feet. <laughs> Fortunately. <laughs> Medical science, incidentally, just completely ignore you know, how the cells in your nose know to stop growing when they do. How do they know to keep going until it's this long and then stop? I mean, for, for, for those of us in whom it is this long. I mean, no one knows how that happens. But they know exactly what they have to do and they do only what they have to do. Even though they have the potential to keep doing it and to do everything else. Is the analogy clear? The reason is that all the parts of a whole in a Torah system must always contain all the parts of the whole. 
some modern thinkers have said that the way that, I mean, some secular thinkers who've grasped this idea but have stated that the world must be a hologram. You know, a hologram is a, is a structure which is, you know, which is um, formed from light, right, which is projected in a certain fashion. Details are not important now. But the nature of a hologram, first of all, is that it produces a three-dimensional image. But more important is that if you take a piece of a hologram and project it, it forms the whole thing. It does not project only that component. It projects the whole thing. Some modern f- physicists have said that the world must be... Okay, in fact, I even read one completely atheistic, secular physicist recently who said that he's come to the incredible realization that if all... Listen, listen to this incredible realization. That if all parts of the whole contain the whole, and the whole world is like that because it must be according to the laws of physics, and the whole world is a hologram, meaning that no matter which part of the world you take, you can find in it everything. And since within that world there is one part which has consciousness, namely us, it follows that the whole structure must have consciousness. He didn't need a PhD, you could have asked me. But it's all about it. <laughs> I once met, uh, since you've already digressed, I'll tell you this. I met a. Uh, <laughs> I once had the opportunity of meeting a, 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 one of the world's leading applied mathematicians. He happens to be Jewish. He uh, doesn't know about it yet. But the point is that uh, he, uh, he told me that in modern cosmic theory, so they figured out that the world must have a certain number of dimensions, much more than the three or four or five, whatever that we usually think of. They've now proved that the world has more dimensions than that. But what's incredible is that they've now done the mathematics right, to a very sophisticated level, and they find that all the equations that are needed to describe the world in its fullness in terms of subatomic physics is that you can resolve all the equations, you can solve all the equations with two different values, and they all work out fine. Those two values are 10 and 26. 10 and 26. Now, the most basic knowledge in any Kabbalistic system is that there are 10 basic components in the structure of the world, or 26 components if you take Hashem's name, right? The Yudke Bavke adds up to 26. This fellow spent many, many years of his mathematical life arriving at the conclusion that any Jewish baby could have told him. (laughs) That's right, it does. Our our sources say that there are 10 dimensions to the world and there are 26 dimensions. In fact, not only that, but if you would have asked me, I would have shown him how the two actually mesh into one. There's no contradiction between them. There aren't two separate sets of values. The one is derived from the other. Anyway, that's that's another discussion. So what, what is the point that we are making? We're saying that any part of the whole contains the whole. And therefore, the nature of this wisdom is that in order to understand any piece of it, you really need to have seen all the other components. Because if you haven't done that, then you're not really understanding this one. All you're understanding in this one is this particular facet. But all the others that make up its structure, you haven't seen yet. And therefore, you can only really begin to understand this first piece after you've seen all the others and not understood them. Only then can you come back to this one and begin to understand it for the first time. Which means it's only that the second time you go through it can possibly be the first time. Facet. But all the others that make up its structure, you haven't seen yet. And therefore, you can only really begin to understand this first piece after you've seen all the others and not understood them. Only then can you come back to this one and begin to understand it for the first time. Which means it's only that the second time you go through it can possibly be the first time. You're sorry you came, huh? <laughs> anyway, that's the nature of this thing. In fact, if you look in a Gemara, fascinating, if you, look in any page, if you look in any edition of the Talmud, you'll see that the first page is always number two. You ever notice that? There's no page one. You know that? Amazing. In all volumes of the Talmud, all, all, the Torah begins with a base, incidentally. It begins with the, with, with, the, with the second letter of the base. 
But every, any volume of the Talmud is always numbered page 2 as the first page. It's a very beautiful hint that you should not think this is the point of beginning. You'd be making a serious mistake if you thought this is where you begin. It's not a linear system that you begin here and all the rest build sequentially. It's not like that. It's an infinite circle so that any point you lock in really needs to be informed by the rest of the circle. It's only <coughs> once you've been through it once. Incidentally, just listen, you have to be aware of the amazing spin-offs of these things. One, one of the beautiful corollaries and necessary spin-offs outcomes of this idea is that you cannot study Torah without a Rebbe. You can't study Torah without a teacher. Why? Because by definition, whatever piece you lock into, you cannot, you, you cannot understand it because by definition you haven't seen the rest yet. The only way you can do it is by studying with somebody who does know what it means, so he can guide you correctly in that piece because he's seen the rest already. Then you need him to help you with the second piece and the third. By, by the time you've been guided correctly and safely through the whole system once, then you can begin to approach it the second time, which will really be your first time. Of course, it really needs much more than that. But that, in theory, is the way... That's why it says, I say, you need, you need somebody who has the wisdom that, who can push you in the correct direction so that when you fall in, again, you will be falling into the correct... Um, So that's the third difficulty with this subject. Now that we've said how difficult it is, let's do our best to try to, to approach the subject. Really, anything that we merit to discuss in the future needs to be based on a clear grasp of this, of this issue. Right? If you try to approach some of these deeper areas of Torah thinking with Western tools, then you'll enter a very, very critical breakdown which is much worse than not studying this material at all. Much, much worse. It's much better to leave it as an unknown area than to damage it and smash it. That's why the, our sources say that if you have a fine instrument that you wish to, you have a fine tool that needs to be worked on, you have a fine watch that needs to be worked on, and all you have is plumber's tools, so then you'll smash it. Smash it. The, the way to do it is not to attempt to work on that thing. The way to do it is to go off and refine your tools. When you spend enough time refining the tools, you come back, it will be amenable to being, to being opened. Those tools are, are, are refined by Torah study. Now, in this area of wisdom that we call Das, what we're talking about, let me try and put it into words, although by definition it's difficult, and then I'll try to use certain techniques to convey, hopefully, a sense of, of what it is that we mean. This inner knowledge, this inner wisdom or consciousness, is the level of your knowledge, and you have it, you have it within you, you have it within you, if you're normal psychologically, more or less, at least more or less normal, you have this certainly, you may not be aware of it, and I'll try and show you that you keep destroying your own knowledge of this thing, especially if you're a, if you're a very classically Western thinker, then you get very uncomfortable when you enter this zone, so you keep denying it, but in fact you have it very richly. It is that part of your awareness which grasps things as they actually are. It's that part of your knowledge, your awareness, which, gra which grasps things because you grasp them. You do not grasp things in this area because they can be proved or, or assimilated through any provable modality or through the senses. This is an area where things are known because they're actually known intrinsically. Let me try to, try to make it clearer. <coughs> The classic exposition of this in the most brilliant form, and you should certainly look it up yourself, and I, I'm sure that it's been translated as well, is Rav Desta. Rav Desta does it like this. It's a genius, genius solution to, to the problem of how to discuss this area. It's a, that's worth reading it for that, for that in, in itself. Rav Desta says like this. Now, now please, stay with me carefully, because this, this is the central 
element that we'll need. There are two parts to your mind. There are two parts to your consciousness. Your intellect, your intelligence, your awareness has two parts. <coughs> there is an outer part and an inner part. What we want to discuss this evening is the inner part. But in order to do that effectively, we'll need to discuss both of them. He calls it Mabat HaChitsoni. The Mabat HaChitsoni means the outer eye, E-Y-E, the outer eye or vision. And Mabat HaPnimi, the inner eye, E-Y-E, the inner eye, the inner vision. Why we want to set these two up in intention is because although we wish to understand the inner eye, the only tools of access that you can have to it are through the outer eye. You can only discuss successfully what the outer one is, and what it leaves you with will be the inner one. Since there are no words for the inner one, all we can hope to do is, if you take what your consciousness is, and you can clearly delineate and differentiate what is the outer one, then you have a chance of, being, of understanding what it is that's left. Since we can't approach this directly, uh, am I making sense? Since we cannot approach this directly, all we can do is try to generate an awareness of it by clearly differentiating it from the part that we can talk about clearly. Then hopefully you'll be left with a sudden surge of awareness of what this thing is. So the way of this says you do it is this. You try to define very clearly and carefully what the Mabad HaChitzoni is. What is the outer eye? And it should leave you with a very clear sense of what the inner eye is. Let's try and do that exercise. Let's approach it like this. First of all, Let's put the outer eye on hold for a moment. What, are, what, what do you know with your inner eye? What, what are the, when we talk about this consciousness, when we talk about this awareness of Mamada Pnimi, that means the things that I know intrinsically, what are those things? What are those things? What do I know with this intrinsic knowledge? What, what is it that I know? But let's understand like this. The Mamata Chitsoni, the outer eye, is defined as follows. Again, stay carefully with, with me for each step. The outer eye, the Mavada Chitsoni, is, is that aspect of your mind which comprises your five senses and your logical faculty. That's all. No more than that. Again, your five senses, your interface with the world, and your logical calculating computer type faculty. Okay? That's the Mavada Chitsoni. Why are those all lumped together? Because by definition, those are mechanical things. If you think about it for a moment, you'll realize that a machine could perfectly well do all of that. You don't have to be human for that. An animal certainly could do it, and a machine could certainly do it. All, is this correct? All you need is different type of sensors. They can be mechanical. And you need a computational or logical faculty that can make certain deductions. Right? A certain mathematical or logical system. Is, is this clear? You don't need to be human for that. You have that faculty. You can make connection with the world. You can sense and, and apprehend things in the world through your senses. Your eyes, your ears, smell, taste, touch, etc. You can do that. Then you can start making derivations and... Uh, <coughs> deductions with that and that faculty of deduction we call Bina. That the faculty of being able to deduce or infer or break down or recombine. But you don't need to be human for that. It's got nothing to do with inner consciousness or awareness. Is this clear? The rest is what we're talking about here this evening. The rest, the other things that you know, the things that have nothing to do with your senses and nothing to do with intellect or logical uh, computation. The things that you know because you know them, not because you sense them and measured them and then calculated certain outputs. The things that you know intrinsically. Let's think about it for a moment. What do you know with your outer, with the Mabad You know all the things that you can apprehend through the world. You can measure certain things and you can, you can sense them. And then you can make deductions and you can recombine them. What are the things you know with your inner consciousness? What do you know with the Mabad What are the things you know like that? They're all the things, listen well, they're all the things that can never be measured. They can never be measured or proven. 
all the things in the outer world by definition can be demonstrated, they can be proven, they can be written down, and I can share them with you reliably and accurately. All you need is a clear thinking, logical, uncomplicated, unclouded <coughs> mind. I'll be able to share them with you, and by definition I will be able to prove them to you. If they're correct, I'll prove them. If you're not, if you're not being difficult, yes, if, you're gonna, if you listen clearly, and you go through the steps, and we're doing the steps correctly, I'll be able to demonstrate and prove anything that the outer mind can, can apprehend or, or, or grasp. Is that, is that, can you see that? The things in the inner mind, I will never be able to show you. I'll never be able to communicate them to you. There's no proof possible. We'll never be able to... Do, can, can you feel this? What are those things? By definition, again, they're all those things that are not amenable to being proved or rationally measured. What are they? I'll give you a few examples. Stay with me very carefully. I'll give you a few examples. The primary example, <coughs> the most important example by far, the primary example, again, the only way we can do this is by running through a number of examples. We can't say the thing itself. <coughs> the primary example is knowledge of yourself. The knowledge that you exist, let alone who you are and what you are, and the nature of your existence and the nature of your character and your personality, the knowledge that you exist is not amenable to any formal proof. But you know it. You know it. If you, if you intact psychologically, the primary thing that you know is that you're here. Long before you can start dealing with any external knowledge and processing it and, comp and computing and calculating, you must know that there is one who knows. But that can never be proved. It's embarrassing. It's actually quite humiliating. Now, if you're a logical thinker and you think you're a powerful thinker and you start proving and demonstrating very sophisticated things about the world and you can't show me that you're here in the first place... <laughs> But it's well known in philosophy that there's no formal proof of my own existence. Huh? There is no successful proof in the history of mankind. There's never been, there's never been a formal proof of my own existence. I think, therefore, I am. And let's think about that for a moment. I think, therefore, I am. Do you know what that means? Do you think he meant... What did he mean when he said, I think? <coughs> did he mean thought in terms of electrochemical brain activity? Is that what he meant? That's no more proof of your existence than the fact that your muscles function or your bladder twitches. Why should that be any more proof of your existence? He didn't mean that. <coughs> what he meant was, I think, therefore I am, means I know that I am. And that's the proof that I exist. And anyone who's initiated into the subject will know what he meant. <coughs> Is this clear? Why can you not prove that you exist? Because those things that are known with the inner mind are by definition, they're not amenable to being measured by the senses and proven logically. They don't live in that zone. They live only in the inner world. Let's take it a little further. Of course, the first thing that one needs to know, and the, and the area that Hashem has given as a gift, we, we've mentioned many times in these discussions, that every area that you require to relate to in the higher world, you're given one free example, one thing that you do automatically and clearly, that doesn't take any effort, that you're born with, so that you can begin to extrapolate and grow and project and develop from that into the areas that take work. In this area, the thing that you're given naturally is the knowledge that you exist. And the decent, any, any, any intelligence at all, any awareness of the world at all should show you that it's the most deep and important element of your knowledge and that it's totally unamendable to the usual kinds of of, of, of um, 
demonstrations and proofs. That should be so obvious that it should be the starting point of a process of figuring out all the, uh, all the other things that this area knows. What, of course, is the end point of this knowledge? The starting point of this knowledge is my own existence, right? The, what we call ani. Ani means I, knowledge of my existence. What is the end of the, pro- of the process? What's the final thing that one comes to know through this inner knowledge? Hashem's existence. It's the only tool. If you're going to start demonstrating His existence through the logical proofs and demonstrations and measuring things, you're in the wrong area. In the wrong area. Incidentally, do you know what one of the deepest names of God is in Torah? Ani. I. In the 72-letter name of Hashem, yes, you know that there are three central verses in the Torah. I'm sure, I'm sure you're aware of that in, in your deep Kabbalistic study. I'm sure you've come across the idea that in the three classical verses in the Torah that are three triple parallels to each other, right? Those three psukim, which are made up of 72 letters each, that the deeper system goes through paralleling all of those. Yeah, that means, yes, the first letter of the one, the middle of the next, and the last of the third, etc., making up 72 three-letter names. So the central one of those three-letter combinations is Aleph, Nun, Yud, Ani. That's why Hillel, when Hillel came to the Beis HaMikdash, on, on Simchas Beis HaShoah, that incredible climax of spiritual expression that used to happen during Sukkot, when he arrived in the Beis HaMikdash, he made that amazing statement, Imani kan akolkan. If I am here, everything is here. Hillel was the absolute, hum- he, was the, he was the pinnacle of humility. Hillel was the one who was completely humble. When a non-Jew came to Shammai and said, teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot, sarcastically trying to taunt him, Shammai beat him off. When he went to Hillel, Hillel was completely subservient. Although he disturbed him and he, and, he, and he bothered him and he called him out of his bath on Friday afternoon again and again with ridiculous <coughs> questions. Why do the Patagonians have broad feet and why do they have eyes like this? And Hillel asked each question patiently and finally he told me the whole Torah while I stand. He did it. told him the whole Torah while he stood on one foot. <coughs> he was a completely unperturbable, totally humble individual. And when he arrived in the Beis HaMikdash, he said, Imanikan Akolkan. He didn't mean Imanikan. He meant Imanika. That's what he meant. Then everything is here. So the beginning of this knowledge, the beginning of this tool, is to be used to know that I am here. And the end of the knowledge of this tool is to know that I am here. Which is an extension of the same knowledge. It's the only way to get there. Are we making progress? Why do people who know try to prove a higher existence from logical proofs. You must have heard some of those. You must have been to some seminar or other someplace. Haven't you? Haven't you been to some lecture or seminar where they try to prove to you that there's something beyond the finite and physical world and they've proved it by various logical manipulations and proofs? Arguments? That's valid. That's valid, but you have to understand its place. What those things do... When someone is skeptical, yes, they don't not prepared to accept that there's anything beyond what they can see and taste and touch and feel. So you can engage with such a person in a discussion of logical proofs. But you know what you're doing? You'll never show him the thing itself. Those proofs do not purport to show you the thing. They do not purport at all to tell you what the thing is. All they purport to do is to show you that this is limited, that's all. That this has its borders. Once you show a person that, and he can see that there's a border and there's something beyond that, you've done enormous... That's, that's enormous progress. If you want to put this in logical terms, and it's permitted to do that, because we're talking about the logical side, <coughs> what we're saying is that these proofs of Hashem's existence, these proofs of a higher world, are all proofs by exclusion. <coughs> yes? I'll give you an example. 
Again, there's a lot to say here. There's a lot to think about. You know what's called the argument from design? Yes, are you familiar with this? The classic proof of the fact that there's a designer is what's known as the argument from design. Since if you see a designed object, you know someone must have designed it. If you see an organized watch, which is functional, you would never assume that the parts organize themselves by accident. They happen to fall together and click into place like that. You would never assume that. You assume that intelligence constructed it. Therefore, when you see a world full of those things, including those things and many others, you assume automatically that someone put it together. That's an argument from design. You have to say that. This argument from design has an incredible limitation. Incredible limitation. Although it's formal argument that is used in Torah sources. But its limitation is, do you know how the argument really works? The argument works like this. If I see the thing that's designed, and it's incredibly intricate in all its interconnections, can I step from there to saying that someone designed it? Of course not. You know where I can step to? All I can say is, is this likely to be random? No. I cannot, again, you can only, the argument from, all argument from design does, it says, let's look, let's look at the world and try to support the notion, the theory, the proposition that the world's a random accident. You can show very convincingly, to satisfy any logical, any reasonable statistician, that the world, that you cannot support that notion. But all you're doing is excluding that option. You haven't proved the opposite. You only prove that there is something else by exclusion. Do you know what the difference is between a proof by derivation and a proof by exclusion? You know that in formal mathematics, there are only two kinds of proofs, two groups of proofs. You can prove a, th prove a thing by derivation, which means you, you take the first principle that is demonstrable and, and provable, and you use that to prove something more sophisticated, and to find you arrive at something that is complex, that has been built on first principles. That's called a proof by derivation. The other thing is a proof by exclusion. Proof by exclusion means that if I know that A or B must be true, and I cannot prove B, but I can show convincingly that A is false, then I prove that B is true. If there are only two possibilities, right, and a possibility, there are only two possibilities here. Either there's an absolute or there isn't. There are not half absolutes. But either there is or there isn't. So, how do you approach that? A proof by exclusion shows that since A is false, B must be true. And it's just as rigorous a proof, and just as acceptable a proof mathematically as a proof by derivation. But there's a massive difference. The difference is that when you prove a thing by derivation, you understand it. You know what it is. You got there from the inside. When you prove a thing by exclusion, you've proved that it must be true because any alternative doesn't hold water, but what it is, you have no idea. Is this clear? Logical proofs of that which transcend the world, which are worth doing, and it's an authentic part of Judaism, and it's worth going to those seminars and considering the evidence. It's fascinating. But all it will ever do is make you less and less confident that the world's an accident. <coughs> the less confident you become that the world's a random accident, the more you are forced to consider that there's something beyond it. But what that thing is, stepping off the brink into what it is, that will never get you there. <coughs> to step off into what it is firsthand by derivation or by experience, you need dice, you need the inner faculty. Is this point clear? What are the things that the dice grasps? One, my existence. And when the knowledge of Hashem's existence is where we're heading. And we won't, we won't get there tonight, I can assure you. <laughs> we probably won't get there in a lifetime. But that's where we're heading. A little bit of that is worth a lifetime. A little bit of that consciousness once in your life is worth living. It's worth living for that. What are the other things that the Daesh knows? Before I get there, let me try to make this, this idea a little clearer. Now, this, this is a, a classic, a classic uh, statement which is one of the most helpful things in grasping this subject. Avesta says that the Mabata Chitzoni, the outer eye, can grasp 
anything in the world that is, that is amenable to being measured and proved and deconstructed and constructed. The inner eye can only grasp those things that do not live in that world. Avdesta says the following incredible analogy. He says the outer eye is like a camera. <coughs> Hear this well. The outer eye is like a camera. A camera can take a picture of anything in the world except the camera. The Mabada Pnimi right, can only, it, it is valid only. The Mabada Pnimi, the inner eye, can look only at itself. The outer eye can look only outward. If you try, if you try to take a camera and try to use it to take a picture of the camera, you can only break the camera. Is this clear? If you're clever, you can get it to take a picture of a reflection of itself. That needs to be discussed. But you cannot turn it in on itself. And the problem with the Western mind is that we keep desperately trying to grasp the inner world by using the camera on the outer world. We keep trying to show ourselves that inner world by turning the camera in on it, and it keeps breaking down. And we keep getting frustrated. Either we give up in despair or disgust, we conclude that it's not true, we come to ridiculous and false conclusions. Can you see the problem? You're trying to use the senses and logic, which is a machine, a calculator, that's all it is. You're trying to use that to know the things that only the dice can know. You're trying to take a camera and you're trying to twist this camera into taking a picture of itself. You're being ridiculous. You can't do that. Until you get in touch with that inner knowledge itself and use it to know what it knows, you'll never get there. You want to know those things, you use that tool. You want to know the outer things, you use that tool. It's no problem. The camera's fantastic, but use it for what it's meant for. But the Western mind can't handle that idea. The Western mind keeps demanding, prove it to me. Look, I'll show it to you. No, no, no. I want you to show it to me. In the lab. Prove it to me. Write it down. Demonstrate it. Excuse me. That's the wrong thing. The wrong tool. No, no, no. I won't accept anything less than that. Well, you'll never get there. The inner knowledge is no less rigorous. It's no less known. It's much more richly known. If you don't have dust, inner wisdom, you can have no outer wisdom. If you don't know that you're here, you can't know anything else. And of course, if you can't know anything external, you can't know that you're here either. Because you have to be connected to a world, of, you have to register with the world before you know that you're here as well. You can't have dice unless there's something for the dice to know. Of course, that, produ- that, that raises another problem which I'm not going to discuss in detail now, which is the practical steps. We have a lot of work to do before we get there. But, but you realize immediately that that statement is internally paradoxical. Im ein das ein bina, im ein bina ein das. How can you make a statement, if I don't have A, I, I will have none of B. But if I have none of B, I cannot have A. It means you can't get either. Doesn't it mean that? No? Again. Im ein das ein bina. If I don't have the inner knowledge, there's nothing I can read in the outer world. If I haven't yet read anything in the outer world, I don't have the inner one. But if you tell me, if you don't have A, you can't have B. And if you don't have B, you can't have A, you've said you can't. There's only one way to get those things. And you know what that is? Exactly at the same time. Can you see that? Unless you connect it in a completely familiar fashion with the external world, and at the same time you're registering it in the inner world, then both can grow and flourish in a healthy fashion. There's the only way to do it. Of course, it pays sometimes to recede into the inner mind. This is called meditation. It pays to recede into the inner knowledge occasionally to strengthen it. So that you at least know it's there, especially if you're a Westerner. You need a lot of that if you're a Westerner. You, need, you meditate three times a day. We call it davening. <laughs> Where you get in touch with who you are and what it means. That's what you're supposed to be doing. If you, if you, yeah. 
If you try and speak to somebody about meditation, isn't that a classic example? You get somebody who really knows what it means to tell you what it is in words. You'll get exactly the wrong idea. Classic example. Speak to somebody about meditation and I'll tell you, switch off the mind. Meditation is not switching off the mind. You know what happens if you switch off the mind? You're unconscious. That's what happens. <laughs> Meditation doesn't mean switch off the mind. It means switch on the mind. That's what it means. What they try to tell you, switch off the outer mind. That's what they mean. Stop trying to get your camera taking a picture. As soon as you relax and believe it, you'll be there. You don't have to do anything. You're there. But you get so nervous, most of us, most Westerners, when they start getting a little flash of that, they get so anxious, they run for the camera. <laughs> How do you get some... Are we making progress a little bit? Yeah, somewhere. It's a difficult subject, but you can't move without this, no? Thinking that Torah and Judaism is some kind of sociological, cultural details here and there, it's, it's hopeless, absolutely hopeless. Better not to touch it. But Torah is his only lives in the higher world. That's what it is. That's its soul. Of course it's connected to this. Of course you need that for this. But if you're going to do this without that, it's like marrying a dead body. Like marrying a dead body. Marry a corpse. That's what it is. To understand that Judaism, I'm not, there's no exaggeration. <coughs> Every child, you know what you're supposed to teach a child the first sentence? <coughs> what are you supposed to teach a child? The first thing when a child learns to speak, you're supposed to teach a child... That the Torah was commanded to us by Moshe, and it's the inheritance of the community of, of Yaakov, of Jacob. And the Gemara says on that, The inheritance, in Hebrew means an inheritance, says the Gemara, Do not call it your inheritance, call it your betrothed. That's a very similar word in Hebrew. The Torah is an inheritance that you get given, and it's the woman you marry. So you learn Torah without the deeper wisdom, you marry the corpse. It's an external body with no soul. It's not alive. Can you see the soul? You can see the body. The body you see with the outer world, with the camera. Do you ever see the soul? Do you know it's there? Do you know there's someone inside that corpse? So if you have any doubts, you know. Not only that, you know who she is. You know who the person is. Can you show it, prove it, write it down, demonstrate it? Of course not. Does it bother you? Of course not. This conflict, between the, can you, yeah, this conflict between the outer and the inner knowledge is a classical problem. It's the classical problem. It's especially the problem of the Western mind, especially the educated intellectual Western mind. How can we begin to make some progress? First of all, let me share with you how can we show that in fact you have your own awareness of this area? Examples are the only way to do this. Let me share with you one or two examples. Rav Miller is well known for, for giving this example. Imagine as you, you're a child. This must have happened to you. If you didn't do this, you had an abnormal childhood. You lay on your back once on the grass, and you looked up at the sky. In a place where you can see the sky. Back in the old country. Anyway, where you... Um, you lay on your back and you looked up at the sky. You must have done that as a child. And you said to yourself, where does it end? Then you said to yourself, it doesn't end. 
just goes on. Then a moment later you said, but one second, but it has to end someplace. So you said, oh, it ends someplace, good. Then a minute later, <laughs> then a moment later you said to yourself, well, okay, that's where it ends, but like, what's beyond that? Oh, you said, well, it must go on beyond that. I said, that's fine. He said, but one second, but that's going to end. You know what's happening? You're having an oscillation between the inner and the outer minds. Can you see that? What happens is your inner mind, the Daisa Pneumia has no problem with the fact that it does. Well, what's the problem? That mind deals with infinite. So it doesn't end. It's not a problem. And suddenly this camera wells up. That intellect, yeah, that, that, and so it's got to end someplace. <laughs> so then you say, it ends, right? Then, and then what happens is, then, you're, then you say to yourself, but look, what's beyond that? And you say, well, it just keeps going. And then there's a relaxation of the... Can you see what's happening? You're misusing the tools. That's what's happening. You're trying, to, you're trying to use the camera. You can't do that. How do you know the knowledge of your existence, for example? You see, the things that the dais knows are the most important things that there are. The most important things... That, please, listen to me... Let me hear this very well. The most important things that there are about being alive and about being human and about love and about human relationships and about spiritual growth, all of those things are known only with the inner eye. They cannot be known with the outer, with the, they cannot be known any other way. All the things, the only things that can be known with the outer knowledge are the technical things about the world. Anything that a machine can read, that's all. And that's useless. That's got nothing to do with growing, with being where it's where it matters. So you've grown up in a Western environment where all you've been trained on is to think like a machine. So they've told you that you're a machine. They've told you in effect that you're an animal. You're a mechanical system. You're a biological machine. That's all you are. And they've done it so thoroughly and so pervasively that you've got a whole generation of Westerners thinking that they're biological machines. Why? Let alone know that you're Jewish. Let alone... It used to be that you had to discuss with people the question about what's different about being Jewish than about being non-Jewish. What's the difference? What's special about a Jewish neshama? What's special about a non-Jewish neshama? Nowadays you can't talk like that. Nowadays you've got to prove to a young Jew that he's a human, not a gorilla. Got <laughs> <laughs> a long way to go. First you have to show him that he's not a biological organism. Only if you can prove, if you can show him, demonstrate, that being human is not the same as being a mechanical object or a lump of protoplasm then maybe you could start talking about what it means to be a man as opposed to a woman. A woman as opposed to a man. Jewish, non-Jewish. Or whatever it is. What lives in the dice? Knowledge of my existence. <coughs> knowledge of right and wrong. Knowledge of right and wrong. Morality. That an action is right and an action is wrong. You try and prove to a skeptic that a particular action like murder, brutal murder, you try and prove to him that it's morally wrong if he's a convinced, rational evolutionist. He'll show you very convincingly that when a human being brutally murders another human, it is no different than a monkey beating another monkey to death in the jungle or some animal of prey eating another animal. You're a biological organism, right? You're an accidentally developed chimp. <laughs> you try and show him that stealing is morally wrong. Not by convention. I'm not talking about by agreement. Because human society has voted this year into effect a law that says that it's wrong. That's ridiculous. That's just a human definition. Try and show him that it's intrinsically and really wrong. 
He'll show you that when one human being takes something away from another human being, it is no different than when one gorilla takes a banana away from another gorilla in the jungle. <laughs> Incidentally, that's what Western thinkers will tell you. They'll tell you that openly. They'll tell you there's no such thing as love. They'll tell you quite openly that the whole thing that we call love and marriage is nothing other than a gorilla's mating instinct. That, that we have a whole way of thinking about the naming and so forth and so forth. It's got no... The problem at the moment is, I mean, the way it ha- this is another discussion, but it so happens that in Western thought at the moment, there's an acceptance of both points of view. That at the moment there's a, there's a very unhealthy ambivalence or dichotomy on this point. The way, the way the West is functioning at the moment is that intellectually they teach that there's no meaning. That's what they teach intellectually, that you're only a biological organism. There's no intrinsic meaning to your life. There's no intrinsic meaning to your marriage or relationship. And yet, because there's an unquenchable, inalienable dias that lives in the heart of man, they also know that those things are meaningful. And that conflict runs right through Western society at present. That's the teacher of biology, yes, who teaches his students in the university that, uh, that we're only accidentally evolved gorillas. He goes home and finds that his wife has run off with the professor of the next door department. He doesn't say, oh, there goes one more gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he do that? Because he knows it's not like that. Of course, what happens is when he catches him feeling, he catches himself feeling like that, and he intellectualizes it. He says, in fact, it is only biological, and all my feelings and thoughts and stuff are only chemical. They are only evolutionary survival instincts that are chemical. That's what he tells himself. But deep in his heart, he knows it's not like that. And that's why you see that in the Western scientific world now, there's this incredibly powerful. And you see it again and again, I mean, that's, uh, in South Africa, it's well known there at the medical school in, happens to be one of the places that some of the most important hominid discoveries and evolutionary work was done. Some of the most central findings in, in hominid development, human, human, so-called human evolutionary development, were made there. And it so happens that there were a number of famous professors, particularly in the Department of Anatomy, who were world authorities in the, in the, in the, in the doctrine of evolution, and in fact bolstering it technically and, uh, and uh, scientifically. These people were absolutely committed to human development being an accidental random process, and the idea that you are only an evolved slightly, a different version of a gorilla. Those very same people were the country's greatest champions of human rights, you know that? Many of them were brutalized by the police. They lost their passports. Some of them disappeared. Because they gave their lives for the human rights struggle in South Africa when it was an active struggle. On the one hand, they're telling you that these are two differently colored gorillas. And there's no meaning in it. And they didn't lose sleep over the fact that one kind of gorilla, you know, took a banana away from another kind of gorilla in the jungle. But in the, in the world of, what, of human biology, they felt that it was morally wrong but it's completely in, completely in conflict. If there's no absolute morality in gorillas, there cannot be an absolute morality in humans. This point is so obvious. I hope it's obvious. So what do you know with the dice that I exist? That there's right and wrong. That you're human and not a monkey. 
How do you know that you're How do you know that a person is not an animal? How do you know? I'm talking about people who are not animals. I'm talking about people who are people. How do you know that a person is a person, not an animal? How do you know? Is there a difference? Assuming it's ever crossed your mind that a person is a person, not a monkey. How do you know that? There is no way to formalize a proof of that. You cannot do it. No amount of technical, logical proof. You can, I'll show you animals that can do anything that you can do better and faster. You know that a human is a human and animals an animal because you know it. You know it in the inner world. If you don't know it there, you will never know it. As soon as you run to the proofs, you agonize because... Ravid always gives the example. I mean, again, you can make it ridiculous just to show. Here's the example about the, the, the phone call in New York to the police. They inform the police that some address in uptown Manhattan, there's a room where they've got a man tied to a table and he's been cut up alive. <clears throat> so the police race up there with their sirens screaming and they burst into the room and it turns out to be the anatomy, post-grad anatomy dissection hall in, uh, what's it, Columbia? What's up there in northern Manhattan? Cornell, Columbia, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, Columbia University. And they are a group of post-grad anatomy students who are busy dissecting a lightly anesthetized gorilla. So the policeman says, look, you called us. You said there was a man being cut up here. So the student says, yes, look, the anatomy student, I called you. This individual here on the table being dissected is a cousin of mine. <laughs> I mean, in evolutionary terms, he's a close relative. He's a cousin. <laughs> so the policeman... He's got solid, good common sense. He spits on the ground and he walks out. Why? Because a monkey's a monkey. A man's a man. There's no problem here. But the professor of anatomy has a big problem. Because he's been teaching his students that there really is no difference between us. No intrinsic difference between us. In, in other words, if you can do this to this poor dumb animal, what is to stop you walking across into Central Park and schlepping in some hobo who has no one to defend him and cutting him up while he's likely anesthetized? Why not? And excuse me, if you can't do it to him, what gives you the right to do it to this poor defenseless animal? And there's no answer for that. If you don't know that... If, I'm not saying it's right to do this to an animal either, by the way. The Torah says you kill an animal that's called spilling blood. It's another problem. There's a talk sometime about that. But the difference in the nature of these things... In New Zealand, you must have read this. In New Zealand, about a month ago, they passed a law awarding civil rights to the great apes. In Parliament, parliamentary vote in New Zealand have now given statutory legal rights to monkeys. <coughs> one of the attacks on this was, not that it's ridiculous, one of the attacks was, what's wrong with rats? <laughs> what's wrong with rats? They said, no, we're working on that. <laughs> but it's necessary, it's necessary. If you're going to teach that it's all accidentally biological, then one or the other, then either they've got consciousness and they're holy, etc., etc., or, or we're animals. Again, there's a lot to say about this, but yeah, let's try and let's try and close the discussion. What do you know with the dice that I exist, that I'm a human, not an animal, that there is a thing called right and wrong? When you do an action that your conscience tells you is wrong, you're about to do this action. How do you know that it's wrong? Wrong, wrong, that's bad, wrong. How do you know that? So if you use the camera, the outer eye, you'll say, Well, it's only wrong because they voted it as such and I was taught like that and I was brought up to feel bad about it and it's all just this external stuff that's chemical and cultural, etc. (coughs) Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Imagine you had the opportunity to steal something that wasn't yours. 
In a way, that's realistic for you. You wouldn't break into a jewelry store with a, throwing a brick through the window. But imagine you could get away with something. Yeah, make a private phone call someplace where your boss, I, whatever your level is. You, we're all guilty of studying. You could get away with it. And a little voice inside you says, this is wrong. So you say to yourself, but that's all nonsense. It's only wrong because my mother taught me that when I was three years old and society <laughs> says, etc., etc., etc. Do you really believe that? But you have a conflict. Something inside you tells you that it's wrong. And you're right. It is wrong. But there's no way to register that by the camera. You can't do that with the external mind. It's a wrong too. There's no, there's no means by which you can show that there's anything real to this other than a cultural phenomenon. And there are many other things that you know with the dust. I mean, without going into detail now, it's already getting late. I'll just give you one other example. Do you know that the concept of the present, the concept of now, the fact that there's a now, that there's a moment called the present, something as simple as that, which is where your life is, in mystical terms it's also referred to by the word Ani. Do you know you can only know that with the dice? Do you know that there's no mathematical, scientific, chemical, physics demonstration of the concept of now? Do you know that? Do you know that in mathematics, anyone with a mathematical background will know, there's not even a way to talk about the present in mathematics. Do you know that? The only way you can show it is in calculus, they have a little fancy squiggle. Yes, that, 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 that's called the differential between the past and the future. That's what it means, by the way. You know that? You know that in mathematics, the way they talk about the present, it's that infinitesimal, which means so small that it ain't there, gap between the past, which certainly isn't here, and the future, which we all agree is not here. So like, you know, where, where are you? <laughs> the present, by definition, the present, by definition, is the infinitesimal interface between the past and the future. The past, certainly not here. The future, certainly not here. And the present is only where they meet with no dimension. So where are you? That problem only exists because you're trying to attack it with a camera, that's all. The camera is useless, it's got nothing to do with the camera. The only way you know about the present is with a healthy dice. You know that now is now. There's no problem that it's always slipping away. It doesn't matter, there's a present. The Ibn Ezra wrote a poem about it. Then. The famous Ibn Ezra, 600, 800 years ago. He wrote a famous poem about it. The poem goes like this. Heovar ayin, which means the past is not. Heosid adayin, the future is yet to be. Vahoyve keheref ayin, and the present is like a wink of an eye. Some add, v'imkain daigaminayin, why worry? You know, if there's no... But, he wrote that, he wrote that beautiful, beautiful poem. The past is not, the future certainly is not, and the moment is, what he meant was, cannot be grasped. So technically there's no present. There are many other areas, and it's getting late now, but the things that are important in life, like who you are, what it means to be human, what it means to exist, what it means to be a Jew, morality, that there's right and wrong, <clears throat> what could be more important than these things, let alone knowledge of Hashem's existence, which is where we had it. The only things you know with a miserable, limited tool of the external mind are the things that a machine can do, a trained monkey can do. And that's all the West admits, can you imagine? Western thought, that's all it's prepared to admit, is that which you can teach a machine or an animal to do. And as soon as it gets into intrinsic knowledge, they don't want to have anything to do with it, because you can't put it in the lab and show it to me. And then they pretend to describe the world. 
My Rebbe said, my Rebbe said it's like taking a dog, cutting his head off, and then talking about what a dog is. Cut his head off, and while this poor carcass goes through its death twitches, you start writing a thesis on what is a dog. It's not bad religion, it's bad science. Be honest. Say there's an area that's not amenable to scientific knowledge. We don't know how to deal with it. Speak to the people who know. We're describing from the neck down. There's nothing wrong with that. We talk about the camera. That's fine. But don't pretend you're talking about reality. Say you're talking from the neck down. That's what the camera registers. No one objects. Science is fine. Torah, Torah and Judaism is absolutely fine with empirical scientific observation. Nothing wrong with that. It's essential to... But don't pretend that's reality. You just cut the head off. How do you experience your own dice? The truth is, if you don't know that it's there, you're already in trouble. You're already in trouble. How can you show it to yourself? I'll end with just a couple of examples. I hope it will be of practical use to you. Just to show you, for those of you who possibly in doubt about it, which is a seriously worrying... Where does the dice function? One example is when you're going through abject terror. When you're so afraid that the outer mind is paralyzed, at that moment there's a rich welling up of the dice. If you're traveling at 35,000 feet across the Atlantic, and suddenly and unexpectedly the plane starts to shake very badly. Have you ever been in that situation? It starts to shake very badly. <coughs> at that moment, if, imagine you're traveling here on a very comfortable flight, and you sit back and you think to yourself, now, let me think, do I really exist or don't I? And start figuring out, you know, I'm actually going to decide that I don't really exist. At that moment, the plane starts to shake very badly. Your eyeballs start to rattle. <laughs> Try at that moment having some comfortable doubts about your existence. <laughs> at that moment, all that exists is don't let me die or my child, which is an extension of the same. The problem is, of course, that there you can confuse the fear for dust. That's not the same thing. It's very hard to find a pure example. We're not talking about the fear. We're talking about, you know why you're afraid? Because you may die, that's why. That's why you're afraid. If you weren't there and richly aware of your ways, you wouldn't be afraid. But I'm not talking about the fear. I'm talking about what you're afraid of. You. There's another time in life when you feel it, it's harder to talk about, but in a moment of complete ecstasy, there's a rich awareness. In fact, our sages teach us that the nature of ecstasy is nothing other than the awareness of your existence. The best example is where the ecstasy is your existence. For example, if you're about to die, and you're sure that you're going to die. Have you ever been swimming in the ocean and been sucked under by a very strong undertow? Has that ever happened to you? To the point where you thought you were never going to breathe again? It's a worthwhile experience. Don't, don't, I'm not suggesting that you risk it. But if it's ever happened to you, it's a remarkably instructive experience. What happens is, as you're about to lose consciousness and aware that you're going to die, suddenly you break the surface and take a breath. That's a breath of pure dice. Those first couple of seconds of realizing that you're alive is a completely unfettered experience of the dice. There's no logical faculty. There's no calculations and computations there. There's a rich knowledge of the fact that you're alive. It doesn't need any proofs. It's its own knowledge. In fact, this is, this is formalized in Judaism. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. The, the Basiyos says, the tool says that, that pleasure, even physical pleasure, nerve endings in the body being stimulated, the real pleasure of those 
is the awareness, the, the heightened awareness of your own existence. You know, when we make a blessing, it's a beautiful thing. When we make a brocha, let's say you eat an apple, right? You make a blessing on food that tastes good. It's called birkas anenin. You know that? The blessings we make on food are called blessings on pleasure. You know that? Birkas anenin. You don't make a blessing on the sustenance and the nourishment of the apple. You make a blessing on the fact that it tastes good. That's why we call it birkas anenin. That has to be pleasure. For, you, are, are you aware of that? It depends entirely on the pleasure of the eating. There's no blessing on the sustenance. The blessing goes on the pleasure of the taste. Classic example is if you drink water when you're not thirsty, you're not allowed to make a blessing. If you drink water cosmetically, you need to drink it. You do not make a brocha. If you drink water to swallow a tablet, you do not make a brocha. You only drink water when you, th- you only make a brocha when you're thirsty and you drink water. You know why? Because when you're thirsty, water tastes good. But if you're not thirsty, water doesn't taste. And you know what the wording is of the bless of, blessing of Bikasanenin? We make a blessing on the pleasure, and what's the wording? Baruch Chei Ha'ilomi. Blessed is he who gives life to the world. The nature, the subject matter of the blessing is the pleasure, and the words are the sensation of life. The real feeling of being alive, the real, the real pleasure, is directly connected with the sense of being alive. Incidentally, in its broken down and pathetically humiliating Western version, this is people who risk dying so that for a few pathetic moments they can feel alive. What kind of person ties a rubber rope to his ankles? <laughs> and jumps off a cliff to see how close he can come to becoming part of the scenery. <laughs> there has to be something wrong with you for that. There has to be something seriously wrong with you. The only difference between the English and anybody else is that the English do it calmly. (laughs) That's the only difference. The Americans do everything hysterically. And the British do everything calmly. I read recently about an English hang glider enthusiast got caught in an updraft to 10,000 feet. 10,000 feet. And at 10,000 feet in a storm cloud, his hang glider broke up. He survived. Survived. He described the experience after. He said, I was in a spot of bother. <laughs> Amazing what you learn. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. And I saw, I heard a documentary on the radio sometime ago. Two more minutes, yes. Anyway, some other time I'll tell you about that. The point is that, um, the point is that, um, why do people risk dying? Is that they do it only for the surge of thrill that when the death point is surpassed and they realize that they're alive, there's an immense surge of pleasure. You know what the surge of pleasure is? Nothing other than the awareness that you're alive. That's all. Some adventurous experiences have their own thrill. Yes, that means there's, there's other physical pleasures or thrills involved in them as well. But the essence of the thrill, 
There is, and there's some adventures that you'll see that people do that are nothing other than the thrill of being alive. Yep. Recently there's been a spate in, of young, young men playing Russian roulette. Huh? There's no physical thrill there at all. The only thrill is that when you put the gun to your head and you pull the trigger and you hear a click, as opposed to not hearing anything. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> is that at that moment of click, there's an unbelievable, indescribable surge of pleasure. The pleasure is only the incredibly rich awareness that I'm still young alive. What a most bitter and pathetic travesty of human existence. That people have to risk dying for a few short seconds of the awareness of being alive. What they experience for those three seconds is living in the dust, that's all. It's worth almost dying to have a little bit of that. The people of spiritual wisdom don't risk their lives. They don't leaping off cliffs and putting guns to their heads so they can have a few seconds of knowing that they're alive. People who know can switch it on. They know. Switch off the external. Switch on the internal. People who really know can have both functioning together. They ain't us and dinner. And that's the center of Torah. Without that wisdom, without that knowledge, there's no knowledge. The Gemara says, The Dabe Kulabe. The Lord Dabe Mabe. If you have this, you have everything. If you have, don't have this, you have nothing, says the Gemara. The Gemara says, Da Kanisa Machasat. If you've acquired Das, you lack nothing. Das Hasata Machanis. If you lack Das, you've acquired nothing. Why is it acquisition? It's a bit late now to go into. But Das is connected with acquisition, with acquiring, with producing. Genuine Kenyan. When does a child get Das? When does the Das come in? At Bar Mitzvah. When does Das come in? Again, it's a whole... We're just beginning to... At the risk of keeping you too late, I'm not going to go into it. But Das comes in at Bar Mitzvah. 12 when you're a girl, certain reasons. 13 when you're a boy. The Das comes in. And it's no accident that at that same point in life is, is physical maturity. At that point when the Das comes into the mind... The ability to reproduce comes into the body. The first time the Torah uses das, it's got nothing to do with knowledge. The first time the Torah uses the word das is the intimate connection between the first man and the first woman. The primary meaning of das, the first meaning of das, is the intimate connection between man and woman and its depth and the fact that it's the beginning of eternity. The borrowed meaning of das is what you know. The mystics say that the reason for that is because what you know is so intimately connected with you. The correct function of connection between man and woman is represented when you know something with your das that is so intimately connected with you that if it turned out to be false, you would not exist. When you know something with a camera and it turns out to be false, it just gets deleted. When you know something with a das and it turns out to be false, you cease to exist. That's how intimate the connection is. But it's easy to see. If you, know, if you know with the dust that you exist and that becomes erased, so you're not there anymore. There's no one left inside. So what dust has to do with Kenyan and marriage and so There's a whole big discussion that we're just beginning this evening. But all we tried to define this evening was the very difficult work of the beginning of the process of that thing which is by far the most obvious thing that could possibly be the beginning of all knowledge and the end of all knowledge. And that's why it says that when the Mashiach comes... The, the, the Torah says, Haskel Become wise and know me. It uses the word das. Hashem says, know me. But das, that's what it is. Not to figure me out through proofs and seminars and demonstrations, but to know it intimately with that intimate bond. That's what it means. And the Rambam says that the old Jewish people were set up. The thrill of the knowledge, that means the whole outlook, the whole 
purpose of the knowledge of the forefathers of the Jewish people was to found Ummah Hayodayas Hashem, a nation that knows Hashem. That's what we're supposed to be. Okay, we'll stop there.